was, but I, I spoke a little bit about the five hindrances. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about one of the hindrances in particular. And um, I'll start with this story of when I first began practicing, it was at the Austin Zen Center in 2001 or so. And I did my first intensive meditation retreat, which we call Seshin, S-E-S-S-H-I-N. And it means to touch body-mind, or more accurately, to touch the mind. So uh, during this, during this um, session, this what people often refer to as a meditation retreat, you eat out of these three small bowls that nest one into the other, and there's a serving crew. And so everybody was practically new doing this, the people who were, and we all took turns serving. And in your first bowl, you, you receive uh, the grain. So for lunch, this was lunch, you receive usually, you know, almost, almost always it's rice of some sort. It uh, doesn't have to be. And you, you um, because it's silent when the person is serving you, it's all silent. There's some chance, but it's all silent. There's these handy, handy, there's these nifty hand signals to say how much you want. So like this means just a few grains, right? Like when you're pinching, just like a ceremonial offering. And when you go like this, that means just maybe half of a ladle or half of a spoon. And if you make no indication, then the person just gives you a full spoon and they'll just keep going until you raise your palm, which means stop. So this person who was serving me was new like myself. And I, I think I just gave her like this little the sign, give me a little bit in my right of rice. And I'm sitting there and she just dumped like two gigantic spoonfuls or yeah, gigantic spoonfuls of rice uh, into my bowl. So my bowl was practically filled with rice. And I was like, stop, stop, you know? I mean, I didn't say stop, because we're supposed to be quiet. And I was, uh, I was kind of annoyed by it, because I didn't really want to eat the rice. And it's a silent retreat, and I couldn't say anything. And I'm sure she just made a mistake. But since, uh, since we're I was sitting there for hours and hours. Uh, the mind's got to have something to do, so it just drummed up a little bit of drama. <laughs> and it's like, oh, so she did it on purpose. She was, was also like interested in my former boyfriend, so that was also the undercurrent there, was that, oh, so even though I didn't want to be with him, it was still like, she's doing this on purpose, she's out to get me. This is like 20 years ago. Um, I hope I've changed a little bit. Well, I am married to a woman, so that's a little bit of a change. Um, so, um, so, 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 so there's these thoughts, kind of unpleasant thoughts, right, of not wanting to eat the rice, this person's annoying me, she's doing it on purpose, blah, 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 okay. So, since I was really new to Zen, I didn't call this, like, aversion or ill will. It was just how my mind was rolling at the time, right? So I didn't have the language to say, oh, that's, that's aversion, Heather, or that's ill will. You're pushing away, just like some of you were saying, you know, pushing away those thoughts, right? I'm, moving, I'm pushing things away, right? So this is the second hindrance, right? And the first one is uh, grasping onto sensual desire. The third one is sloth and torpor uh, or, or lethargy, and then restlessness and remorse, and then corrosive doubt. Right, so I'm going to be focusing on this aversion or ill will. So, um, as some of you might remember if you were here for the talk that I gave before, so these mental afflictions or hindrances, 
they hinder our spiritual development, right? They uh, prevent us from experiencing calm and insight while we're sitting on the meditation cushion. It's very difficult, as maybe some of you have experienced, to uh, feel like calm and open and receptive when the mind is like popping along, right? And then also maybe when you're experiencing some kind of physical pain, also the mind will react away from that pain. It's hard to sort of pay attention to pain, like if you're getting a shot or something like that, a lot of us like turn away, like is it over yet? And sometimes it hurts more when you're not looking at it, at least that's my experience. Um, so they hinder our ability to feel some kind of liberation from suffering, and they are suffering themselves, these mental hindrances, these five mental hindrances. Um, and in the Buddhist scriptures, they often refer to them as overwhelmers of the mind, or they overpower our, our natural wisdom. So in that moment when I was annoyed with this, with this person, um, my mind was being overwhelmed, right? It was, over, it was clouding over. All those storm clouds cluttering the sky, right? Cluttering the sky. So um, when, we, when we are experiencing any of these mental afflictions, and I'll just focus on the aversion one, we, it colors the way we perceive what's going on, right? So I was imputing all this stuff, projecting all this stuff onto this person's probably fairly innocent mistake, right? She was new, I was new, and she dumped all this rice. Now had she not, now had not the ex-boyfriend been involved, perhaps it wouldn't have been maybe that much, that much aversion arising in my mind, but that was also part of the picture, right? So when we are not able to stay, to not able to experience calm, we don't have insight. It impedes our ability to have insight. And, the, and, and classically speaking, it's, in, it's having embodied insight into what the Buddha calls the three marks of existence, which is one of my favorite teachings. I find it to be one of the Buddha's most transformative teachings, which is that there is suffering in life, which is also the first noble truth, that, uh, and, and suffering also, you can say the word can also be translated as dissatisfaction or things are unsatisfactory, right? that everything's impermanent, like we just notice with our meditation. Everything's arising and falling away. And that it's not to take these things personally, that there's no solid, fixed heather that's independent of everybody in this room, right? We're all interconnected, and that's what I love about Buddhism, because we are profoundly connected to each other. And for me, the practice of Zen Buddhism has really made that more of what I experience, rather than um, this kind of constricted sense of Heather, okay? So um, I chose to work on, to talk about this ill will or aversion because it does seem like uh, we have a lot of aversion, ill will, hostility, violence in our world today. We have uh, either full-scale wars raging or skirmishes raging civil wars, we have you know, millions of refugees, thousands of people have died, and here in the United States, we've had more than like 170 mass shootings this year. Um, so it's more like the divided states of America instead of the United States of America. And that division starts here, right? This division, if we have division, if we have hostility and aversion inside of us, 
if there's parts of ourselves we don't like, parts of ourselves we don't want to see, um, then we, that can radiate out to others. Right. So the Buddha offered this analogy. Uh, he offers, he's, he was really a phenomenal uh, storyteller <laughs> and uses wonderful similes and analogies to teach with. And for the hindrances, he uses uh, a bowl of water. And so for the bowl of water, he talks about if you were to see a bowl of water for on, on the flame and it's boiling over, right? That's what our mind can be like when we're overwhelmed by aversion or ill will or this desire to injure, right? And with like, say, lethargy or sloth, it's like that bowl has algae, you know, <laughs> algae in it. And so depending on whatever hindrance it is, it affects the way we perceive things. So with the boiling water, right, I'm not able to actually see myself. I'm, I have a distorted view of myself. And I'm looking out at the world as well with this distorted view. And I'm sure we all have people in our lives, maybe we're the person in our life who might be quick to anger or maybe always thinks people are angry at them. So this is, again, just for us to understand and explore and investigate. I think some people um, have karmic tendencies to have to be more afflicted by one or two of these hindrances rather than others. Like some people fall asleep while they're meditating, right? That's, they just, right? They're not really in control of it, but that's what arises for them sometimes when they're meditating, right? Some people have a hard time even coming to, to meditation. So again, this is about investigating our own bodies and minds to find out when some of these hindrances might be present. Um, so, in comparison, of course, to all the violence that's happening in our world, those thoughts of aversion about having all that rice in my bowl um, seem kind of innocuous. But that's where everything begins, is in the mind. And in fact, Buddhists view emotions as mental, as mental events, right? Which is a little different from how I understand them from a Western psychological standpoint. So in Buddhist... In Buddhist psychology, an emotion is something that colors the mind, sets something into motion, and has us see the world in a different way, and it colors our way that we perceive reality. But it was clear to me, uh, looking back on this story, that I was definitely pushing away the rice in my bowl, <laughs> pushing away this person who was serving me, right? So this. Aversion has this pushing away energy. I'm rejecting this. I'm pushing this away. And there is this uh, really wonderful teacher, Ajahn. Ajahn's just a teacher in uh, Ajahn Teradamo. He's a Thai forest monk practitioner. And in his book, he talks about dropping the labels. So these concepts, right? Okay, well, there's grasping for sensual desire. There's ill will and aversion, there's sloth and torpor. So those are concepts, and what we're doing is we're dropping below conceptual thinking, and we're cultivating, having direct physical experiences of what's arising. So if we remove these labels and we just feel what the energy is like, so for aversion, like I said, it's this pushing away energy. For sensual desire, it's this grasping, I want that, I need that. I love Mini Coopers, I need that Mini Cooper, I need that TV, 
I need that job, I need this. I don't have a Mini Cooper, but I need this, I need that. Uh, I wish I'd bought one instead of my Nissan Maxima. Um, so, and then like with sloth and torpor, this uh, lethargy is like a collapsing energy, right? I'm sure we've all experienced being so tired, it just feels like we're collapsing. And then with restlessness and remorse, it's this overstimulation, this energy, right? Um, where you're just, people, there's some people who are constantly cheerful and they make me a little nervous, but they're constantly cheerful <laughs> or they're constantly excited about something, right? Um, and there's just, there's not this kind of even keel. And that also can, that even keel can also just be a suppression as well, right? It's not necessarily equanimous. It can actually be an apathy rather than an actual, uh, a true equanimity. And this doubt, corrosive doubt, is like a vacillating energy. You know, just sometimes you're not able to make a decision. Okay. Um, so if we can notice, if, if, since we're talking about ill will and aversion, um, noticing when we feel, even if it's something slight, um, like the issue with the rice, if we can just notice that energy, touch the energy of the body as well as the thoughts. Thoughts have a texture to them. Okay. And it wasn't until I read Ajahn Tiradamo's book that I got, a, I got a really deep insight when he talked about ill will and aversion as the rejection syndrome. And I never heard it put that way before. I've heard people say, well, anger just means you're covering up fear. Excuse me, or you don't want to be vulnerable. And I think, yeah, okay, yeah, I can see that. We're, we're protecting ourselves. We're um, pushing away what's coming at us and trying to protect ourselves by being angry or agitated or uh, maybe even frustrated. But when I read this word rejection, I thought, oh, that felt like it really resonated with me, uh, this rejection syndrome. So um, what happens is there's this physical or emotional event. So even like a physical sensation, we could be like, oh, I don't want my knee to hurt. I'm just going to not pay attention to it. Right? And I'm sure we've had people like that in our lives. They completely ignore <laughs> until something's really dire, and then they're in the emergency room, right? Otherwise, they, they, they ignore it. So there's slight pushing away energy uh, in response to some kind of event. Right? So there's like a feeling tone of unpleasant, uncomfortable. Okay? And we're not really in control of that feeling tone. So there's the feeling tone of this is unpleasant, this is pleasant, or this is neutral, where we may not even notice it, right? So we're not, we're not in control of how we respond to certain things that stimuli, right? These feeling tones. But what happens is that with, with this aversion, um, we contract, right? We're contracting away, we're pulling away from something. And that's usually to protect ourselves, to protect feeling rejected, to protect feeling hurt, that wound of feeling like we, um, maybe we don't belong or maybe we felt portrayed by somebody. And maybe it's from our childhood, maybe we don't know where it's from. And again, this is all about investigating and experimenting, okay? And usually the stronger the reaction of ill will or aversion or anger, to an arising event that often reflects uh, 
the intensity or the deepness of that wound of rejection, right? And, excuse me, I also want to mention that even though anger or frustration or resentment is a more visible way of seeing this rejection syndrome, there's other ways too that we avoid. So, um, and some of this really is coming out of the study of how we, how we are affected, how our bodies and minds are affected to trauma, especially I think trauma over long periods of time. So, as some of you might know, you can also, so there's the fighting, which is kind of more of the anger, ill will thing, right? So you're just, or there's the fleeing, I'm out of here. Uh, the freezing, oh my gosh, what do I do, right? So you get numb, paralyzed. And here's one that I hadn't heard before, fawning, the people pleasers, right? They don't want to have conflict. So instead of speaking up to how they feel, expressing their emotions, expressing their truth, they just go along to get along. And I'm not saying that sometimes that's not a helpful strategy, right? Okay, was it really worth mentioning it to this person? Or is it really worth, um, when, when, you know, we all learn when to actually take a stand for ourselves. And so it's, again, all about us learning about our karmic habit patterns. So this fawning I thought was interesting. I hadn't heard this kind of people-pleasing um, people as an aversion, that I don't want to deal with this conflict. And that usually means something here, too, that how we are working with this externally is also how we're working with it internally, right? It all reflects what's going on for us internally. And so this, this, there's a, there can be this real stuck pain energy that might be difficult to open up to because there's a reason why we have these defense mechanisms because we needed them, especially when we were children. And then as adults, we turn toward them sometimes because they're no longer serving the purpose and they're kind of getting in the way of having like a healthy, happy life, right? So this stuck pain energy is seeking an outlet and often this outlet comes through this kind of aversion. Speaking of Theravadan monks, one just walked in the door. There he is. Okay, great. Um, maybe I'll just give my seat over. Uh, yeah, so this stuck pain energy you know, all energy is flowing. So when the energy, when the when the energy is stuck, it's seeking an outlet, right? And so we've probably all been around people's angry dumps, you know, the venting, right? Or you're at the water cooler and well, we don't really have. Maybe we have water coolers. I don't know. People aren't even offices anymore, so who knows? Um, yeah. So since everything is flowing and in flux, when this pain energy is trapped, but and maybe it's it's so far down that we don't even notice it yet. Right? And when we start to meditate, things start to flow to the surface. And sometimes it can be really uncomfortable. So just, just know that that's something that can happen. Um, but I think that part of our human journey in this human body-mind is to transform this karma of stuck energy. Right? Whether it's the stuck energy of freezing or fawning or fleeing or fighting. Right? To try to find some peace in the middle of, of what's arising for us. Some calm in the middle of this swirl that might be happening. And these hindrances, you know, they can be subtle or gross. So, um, and sometimes we think things are gonna be worse than they are, right? We sometimes we have these projections like, in my case, uh, um, 
uh, could be other people's cases as well, you have an idea that something might happen, like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job, or I hope I don't see that person, right? There's that rejection, that pushing away, ah, ill will, aversion. And the mind starts to go crazy on all that, and then all this energy is being built up. It's like a starts out as a small snowball at the top of the mountain, and then if you keep letting the mind proliferate, that ball is going to get bigger and bigger as it goes down and gains more and more momentum, and it becomes more intense, and then often there could be this avalanche, right? I'm going to vent, I'm going to, all this energy is going to be dumped on someone else. So meditation helps give us, I think, a healthy outlet for that energy, right? It helps us to sit with some of this volatile energy or the stuck energy and allow it to arise in a place while we're on the cushion and watch it disappear if we can. Right? So it, it's arising like everything else. It persists in this flux, and then it dissipates if we don't hold on to it. Um, and there is this, there is this uh, I read this study once, or an excerpt of the study, about how animals, I think there's a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. But I, and when I, I never read the book, but what I imagine it's about. <laughs> is that animals, like a zebra that's you know, always running around for it's, it's trying to save itself from being killed by the many predators uh, in Africa, is there's a way that animals deal with trauma that humans don't often, that, don't, that humans don't deal with trauma in the same way. Because we have this idea of ourself, we have this self-reflective consciousness, and especially if we're continuing to be exposed to some kind of trauma, it just gets stuck. So. Um, that's the positive and negative of being human beings, is that we have this sense of self and we're trying to protect ourselves just like the zebra, but the zebra's probably not walking around with that kind of stuck energy because it's um, releasing it every time, it is, I think, every time it escapes from being killed, which seems very traumatic to me. But, um, so, so this is what Ajahn Teradamo says about working with this... Uh, pain energy that might be stuck with and underlying this rejection syndrome. He says that a substantial degree of patience and perseverance is required to undo the habitual pain contraction, right? So the contraction of energy, the st sticking that energy, this pain contraction underpinning ill will as, the, as this goes against all of the ego conditioning we have cultivated during a lifetime. So if we've been really hurt in the past, there's a backlog of unresolved hurt, right? That needs, that's looking for release, that's looking for transformation. And I think practicing meditation is really a transformative body practice, right? We have to take care of ourselves, of course, because we don't want to re-traumatize ourselves. But, you know, this, the more we move away from this unresolved hurt, and we might not even know that we were doing it until maybe you start practicing meditation or you're reading some books, um, but the more we move away from it, that doesn't heal it. That just actually makes it worse in the sense that it's staying somewhere in our subconscious and it's, I like to use this word bullying, it's kind of bullying us, right? It makes us react in ways that cause harm to ourselves and others. So this fighting reaction, which again probably causes this most uh, immediate harm, uh, but there's also these other ways, like I said, that are less visible. 
So when we can continue to practice meditation, um, we're basically just becoming aware of what our mental states are. Like, oh, how is the mind? And maybe you can just put like a little index card. I don't know if, if, you, if people still write things down on paper anymore, but you can have one on this handy contraption that's like a reminder. Oh, how is the mind? Oh, how is the mind? And you can notice what's coming up in your mind. Is there, are there thoughts of anger or ill will? Um, did you just people please? And not to beat yourself up with this information. This is so that you can pay more and more attention to what's going on in the body, what's going on in the mind, what emotions are present, so that we can slowly be less reactive, right? Have some calm inside of us so that we can respond to what's going on in our lives instead of reacting from this old karmic conditioning, right? Moving away from the backlog of unresolved hurt. Instead, turning toward it with this mind of peace and generosity toward ourselves, right? Being kind to ourselves when we maybe cause harm to somebody or even to ourselves. And um, my, uh, practicing meditation helps us to observe what's going on. And that's why I think, so we observe what's going on, but we're not trying to change it. We're just being compassionate. We're being open. So it's not about stopping thoughts. It's not about having a particular type of experience. It's not about moving away from discomfort. It's actually being present and compassionate toward everything that's arising. Okay, so it's, a, it's an opening to the world on this cushion. So there's a few... Uh, ways that we can, more than a few ways that we can work with arising ill will. One is cultivating loving kindness, or to use the other Sanskrit word, metta, M-E-T-T-A. So I like to refer to it as the metaverse, you know, M-E-T-T-A. Wouldn't that be great if it was M-E-T-T-A, loving kindness universe, instead of M-E-T-A, metaverse? So I don't know, maybe I'll give Zuckerberg a call and ask him if he wants to change it. Um, so cultivating loving kindness toward ourselves and whatever hindrance is arising. Oh, there's, there's an angry thought. Okay, can I, can I embrace that thought? Or can I at least just notice the thought and see how I'm feeling in the body and see if I can just sort of embrace it or at least be friendly toward the thought? Because often the angry thought, and you get angry at being angry, and as Thich Nhat Hanh says, then you have an extra anger, right? <laughs> It's like you're moving away just from that one anger. It's actually distracting you from feeling that. So this also cultivating friendliness. Maybe how you might uh, work with a friend who's feeling angry about something. Maybe you would offer kind words to this person to help settle them. You can do the same for yourself. Also, I think this is a really fun one. If you're angry at somebody, you can look at them as like anatomical parts. So what are you angry about? Oh, I'm angry at their hair. Oh, I'm angry at their foot. Oh, I'm angry at their right toe. Oh, I'm angry at their left shoulder, right? So we start to not see people as this fixed, finite unit, and it just kind of breaks it up like, oh, this is a person made of anatomical parts, and where is this person I dislike? Are they in their hair? Are they in their skin? So we start to 
look at us in a look at people and ourselves in a less personal way, and that can help to sort of diffuse that um, that arising anger. And the same with the elements, like we did a little bit this earlier today. What part am I? You know, what element am I angry at in them? Oh, is it the earth element? Is it the liquid element? <laughs> is it the air element? Is it the fire element? Right. And this is again just ways to diffuse that, ways to sort of stop that snowball from getting larger as it goes down the hill. And um, also we can, if we're able to, just reflect on the harm that we might cause uh, by expressing ourselves and sometimes by not expressing ourselves. Maybe the fawning caused harm. Maybe the fleeing caused harm. Maybe the freezing caused harm. And so again, it's just about noticing what our habit patterns are and noticing when we're triggered and how we move away from, from that. Um, and so when we can cultivate this calm mind, even if it's just for like 40 seconds or 30 seconds, uh, that affects our body-mind in the next moment and the next moment. So the Buddha's teaching of this, that conditionality is showing us that, uh, that we can change our karmic patterns. If everything's impermanent, that also means these hindrances are impermanent and are not really who we are. Because karma can be changed, I mean, if karma couldn't be changed, then I don't know if, you know, um, yeah, I just, there's no way that it, because it can change, because karma can transform and the, for me, the practice of transforming our karma is practicing meditation. That's what I wanted to say. Practicing meditation in a routine way and studying the Buddha's teachings and being in Sangha like you are now can help transform our negative karmic habit patterns. And um, some of you, I want to end on this quote. Uh, I think, you know, for me, this practice is about removing the armor we were, not, we're not born with hearts that have armor around them. That's something that we're taught. So this, for me, this practice is a slow melting away of the armor around our heart so that we can be, ha, experience freedom. And hopefully that radiates out to other people. And Suzuki Roshi, who is the founding teacher of the San Francisco Zen Center, he has many beautiful teachings and this quote uh, I really love is moment after moment, everyone comes out from nothingness. Right? So moment after moment, everyone comes out from nothingness. This is the true joy of life. And if we can remember that, to not hold the judgment of ourselves and others past that moment, allowing yourself and that other person to be different. Oh, I know exactly who that person is. Well, no, they're different. They may not know they're different, but you know they're different. You know they're changing because you know you change. And so when we don't make somebody into a statue, then we ourselves are not statues. But when we objectify ourselves and say, oh, we're always this way, then we uh, bump up against other people's statues. You know? So it's about reminding ourselves of this fluidity of who we are, ever-changing, um, causes and conditions and I think that uh, can help us experience some freedom in the middle of whatever is arising
in each moment. So, thank you.